0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm.
1: Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock.
0: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
1: This week we're continuing our special summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with the story of the daughters of Zelophehad, as told in Numbers 27, 1-11, and 36, 1-12. We marvel at these five young women who stand before Moses and the whole people of Israel to advocate for their right to inherit property after their father dies without any sons. When Moses takes their claim to God, God responds simply by saying, the daughters of Zelophehad are right, and then modifying the Torah for all time so that women can inherit property if they have no brothers. We talk about the courage of these women to work within the system to advocate for themselves and for all women within the patriarchal society of Israel. We discuss God's unquestioning acceptance of their perspective and full acknowledgement of their interpretation of the Torah, even as they point out that God had overlooked some issues in the original giving of the law. We also recognize that this text does not go as far as we might wish. The system of inheritance in ancient Israel remains fully patriarchal with this one minor modification in favor of women. But then, change is slow and never happens as quickly as we might like. In that sense, the daughters of Salafahad give us encouragement to continue in the struggle for women's equality even still today. Thanks for joining us. Hey Amy, how are you this week?
0: I'm doing all right. I'm enjoying being in this series on women in the Hebrew Bible and it's just like, I don't know, it's like playing through my head. You know uh-huh. how that happens when you're studying sure. a text and it's just like, I don't know, it's like you know the things in the corner of your mind in the shower like <laughs> like yeah. it's really created some more space for me to think about how I as a woman in the in modern America interact with the stories of women in the biblical text and where yeah. they're hard for me and why they're hard for me and where they're empowering for me. And yeah, it's been interesting.
1: That's really interesting, Amy, because you, obviously you relate to this text in a different way, a more embodied way than I do. I'm just curious, like what kinds of, what kind of stuff is inhabiting your mind?
0: It <laughs> makes it sound like a, <laughs> some kind of like parasite. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the at the beginning of the summer, when it was Shavuot, around the time of Pentecost, I taught a class on the regendered Torah, which I've mentioned a couple times yeah. over the course of this year, that flips all the genders in the Torah and, and sort of tells the story that way. And I taught it at a community that is more conservative than my home community.
1: Yeah.
0: So I was aware that people might really, like, have a heart attack, like... <laughs> Like that yeah. this was a, a a pretty radical thing to ask them to think about. Yeah. And as I was doing that, as I was preparing for like how I could wade them into these waters, I was thinking about why it is sometimes not enough for me to have the stories of the women that we have in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think what's part of what's hard for me is that I have been like it or not socialized, uh, in the ways of of particular ways of womanhood, I don't know, that that really sort of involve like kind of staying within the lines, you know, yeah. like not, not overturning the, the apple cart or whatever. You're supposed yeah. to follow the rules. You're supposed right. to follow the rules. And most of the stories of women in the Hebrew Bible that sort of rise up to the level of, we're going to tell a story about a woman within this patriarchal society, they don't play within the rules because... The rules don't give them any space to do anything. Right. Right. So we read a lot of stories of of women that that are really uncomfortable for me because they have to be quote unquote manipulative or quote yeah. unquote tricky or whatever, because that's the only option. And I recognize that like theoretically, but it it is uncomfortable for me. Yeah. This week we get to read a really different story of women finding power in the world that I feel like, you know, again, for better or for worse, I'm not this, I don't know how I feel about the fact that I, that I feel this way, but these daughters who go about trying to create change legally, like who, who go through the steps that you would go through to get something like officially overturned. There's no trickery. There's no deception. There's no, you know, costumes or, you know, like
1: right, yeah. I don't know, any
0: any of the things that might be involved in some of the other stories. And it I just love that there is this story in there too. Yes. It, you know, it's easier for me as a as a modern woman, I think, or as I'll just say a modern person having been socialized the way that I was. But it also is just it's just nice to have a range. Like here are some yeah. ways that power as inhabited in a female body. I don't know yeah. if that phrase made sense syntactically, but I hope you know what I meant, that a uh, ways that that can look. Yeah. And so I'm I'm excited to be reading this story today of the daughters of Salofahad.
1: That's so interesting, Amy. I appreciate your putting it that way. And while, while you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, because I guess it was two episodes ago now, we were talking about Tamar, who has to, you know, manipulate yeah. the system in some pretty dramatic ways to carry on her legacy or to live up really just to live up to her obligations even then and then next time we're going to talk about Rahab who also has to like be pretty deceptive in some ways Mm -hmm. so it's just interesting like and I don't know how far to push this but these women that we're talking about today the daughters of Zelophehad are uh, Israelite women and those women seem to not be and so I think
0: One of the things that
1: we're talking about is like the different ways that women can interact and act. We're also talking about, I think, at some level, the intersections of gender and ethnicity. And is it the case that women who are not part of the dominant ethnicity have to exercise or find power in other kinds of ways around the edges where these women Mm -hmm. have some access because of their ethnicity? I, I don't know how all that plays out.
0: I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting question. It may be more often the case. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's across the board the case because they're they're a tricky, quote unquote, sure, there tricky are. Israelite yeah, yeah. women too. Yeah, but that's a that's a great point. Like, it's not like we all have a singular identity, and that's
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> and yeah. that's what we get, you
1: know. And you keep coming back to that, which I really appreciate. Is like all women are not like the same woman, which I think is like I mean, it's obvious at one level, but also when you do a series on women of the Hebrew Bible, like the temptation, I think, is to say, look at woman's experience. And it Mm -hmm. it is not that at all. You're right. It's the experience of different women in different social locations, at different periods and different circumstances. And so the ways in which they interact are quite diverse. And I think, and that's really helpful to to bring out. So I think that my natural way is to say Zalafahad. And so I'm going to do that <laughs> I did a video. You know, I do these Bible study videos, and I uh, normally say uh, Hagar. But in this Mm. video, I picked up your pronunciation uh, and said Hagar. Did it confuse
0: you? And I I had
1: to keep correcting myself in this whole video. And so I sounded completely insane, but uh, I don't like to go back and like I can't edit video very well. And so I don't, I just run them straight through in one thing. And so at the end of the video, I had to be like, y'all, I'm sorry (laughs) I tried to say Hagar. (laughs) But it always comes out of Hagar. And so that's why I sound crazy in this video. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's hard when you have more than one uh, pronunciation in your head. This is a text that I learned. We don't. I mean, we do talk about it in the Jewish community, but not as much as we talk about Hagar. So I still have Salofahad in my head, also.
1: Yes, I was. I was going to ask you about that because, like, this is a story that I didn't really know until I don't even know when in graduate school, sometime. Yeah. Maybe Like I was pretty far in my biblical education before I ever really thought about this story and the daughters of Zalafah had. And I, so I was going to ask you if that is also true in the tradition that you were raised in. And it sounds like this is not at least like a front and center text. It's but
0: not a front and center story. No. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's in the Torah. So it's in the annual readings, but yeah, it's not like the story is of the matriarchs. Yeah. Right. Of Genesis and Exodus, like those mm. are the those are the story stories. And here, like it's a story, but Numbers is such an interesting book because it sort of goes back and forth between story and really boring parts where they're just counting people and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and some legal stuff. And and this is sort of an intersection of story and legal stuff. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it doesn't get top billing.
1: Yeah. All right, so this is the story of the Daughters of Zelophehad, which we are taking in two parts. It, the main narrative comes in Numbers 27, 1 to 11, and then it gets picked up again in Numbers 36, 1 through 12, which is not really, they're, the Daughters of Zelophehad are not exactly characters in that second story, but the implications mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. what has happened in the first story are kind of worked out. They actually show up again in Joshua 17, which we might mention briefly at the end of the podcast. So we are transitioning from the story of Miriam to this story. We've only moved. We were in Numbers 12 and now we're in Numbers 27. And so I don't know, you know, in the context of this Women of the Hebrew Bible series, are there things that you think we need to clarify or talk about before we enter into this text?
0: I mean, I don't have a lot that I feel like we need to do in terms of just like the plot catch up. We're still, you know, we're wandering in the wilderness <laughs> and 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 really working out the details of what it looks like to live as a community. And so that, you know, has involved a lot of people speaking out against each other and getting in a lot of trouble, as we saw with the story of Miriam and Aaron and Moses last time we've had some other rebellions violently put down by god but i sort of i mean i think that it just feels like this is this is the unfolding of like great you have that huge theophany and now you have to run that through like what is that actually going to look like on the yeah. daily and that's what they're that's what they're figuring out and that's what this story is like they are they have encountered a situation that is not addressed specifically in the laws that have been given and they're, they're asking, you know, what, what can we do?
1: I think that's, I think that's exactly right. There is also one sort of enormous difference between numbers 12 and here, which may not be overly relevant for our conversation, but back in numbers 13, Moses sent spies into the land of Canaan to spy Mm -hmm. out the land and say, can Mm -hmm. we go? And the spies came back and said, Oh my gosh, those people are ginormous. Mm -hmm. And we look like grasshoppers standing next to them. And then the people are so afraid that they don't want to go to the land. And so the Lord in Numbers 14 says, you know what? I'm just going to kill all you guys and start over with Moses. To which Moses says, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. And so God says, fine, I'll just make you wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies and the next Mm -hmm. generation can enter the land. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So in Numbers 12, we were still in in the sort of the scenario was the Israelites mm-hmm. were coming out of Egypt and they were just going to go into the land. In between there, we've sort of gotten diverted, literally, so that mm-hmm. now there's a forty year wandering. And so this story sort of takes place in the midst of that forty year wandering somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how much difference that makes to the actual story. No, but, it, but I that's think it's important. that's
0: really helpful, and that the immediate immediate context before we pick up in chapter twenty seven is going to tell us that. The generation that went into the wilderness has all died, except for Caleb and Joshua, the sort of loyal uh, spies. Right. And obviously Moses. Yes. So, you know, our text today is dealing with the issue of, like, inheritance and what does inheritance look like between the generations. And, and that's pressing now. Exactly. Yeah. They have these ancestral lands that have been assigned once they uh, enter the land of Israel and they actually have to figure out the continuity between generations for for those things.
1: Yeah. All right. So we're going to pick up in Numbers 27 and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. The daughters of Zelophehad, Hafer's son, Gilead's grandson, Machir's great-grandson, and Manasseh's great-great-grandson, belonging to the clan of Manasseh son of Joseph, came forward. His daughters' names were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the chiefs, and the entire community of the entrance of the meeting tent and said, Our father died in the desert. He wasn't part of the community who gathered against the Lord with Korah's community. He died for his own sin, but he had no son's. Why should our father's name be taken away from his clan because he didn't have a son? Give us property among our father's brothers. Okay, I'm just going to stop there because that's just such an interesting kind of situation that we have found ourselves in. You were talking just a little bit about the situation uh, a minute ago, but can you just help us understand like, what is the issue that is being raised here?
0: Yeah. So here's how I understand the issue. Lands have been allocated to each sort of tribe and each clan, and it is meant to be a permanent allocation. I know I know. last summer we talked about the Jubilee year. I don't know if we talked about it at all this year, but it is it is so much of meant to be an enduring allocation that even if you sell the land let's say because you're in terrible de- debt and you can't you don't have any food you need to sell your land every 50 years it reverts back to the yeah. original you know clan that owned the land and we are in a society where everything passes through the men you know like we we started the book of numbers counting all the israelites and guess who's not counted bobby
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right yeah. it, it's only men really yeah. men of a certain age that are that are counted in the system and so the question that has come up is if a man the father who has land dies without a son but he has daughters what happens what happens to the land. Right. And that the, these daughters, I mean, it's really, it's pretty amazing that they, that they come forward with this at all. I mean, they yeah. come forward between, they, they come forward in front of Moses and the priest and the chiefs and the whole assembly. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: You know, these people who are not even counted in the census and say, hey.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: are and they don't say it's because we deserve it they say sort of in the name of the fa- our father like this yeah. is how the system was designed yeah but the system can't work the way it was designed and so you need to there's a gap that you need to fill
1: yeah now I really love that one verse that you were pointing to verse two they stood before Moses and you're like okay all right Allah are the priests and you're like oh like well, there's two of them The chiefs, and then the entire community. (laughs) Like it starts with like, they came to Moses. (laughs) And then by the end, they're standing in front of the whole nation of Israel. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just think it's it's like the camera's panning out or something. But no, it really is kind of a, I mean, an exceedingly brave thing that they do.
0: Yeah. Like, how did they even know that they had standing to do this? Yeah. Like, how did the, you know it? In some ways, it, it really sort of turns on its head my sort of imaginings of what it would have been like to be a woman in that society because yeah. they're no shrinking violets.
1: No, you know, not at all. they
0: all. Uh, they, they, they claim they claim rights within the legal system, but they, you know, they they bring a case to the Supreme
1: Court. And I also appreciate that. I like that way of saying it because it's not, we had talked about it a minute ago as they are raising a question about inheritance, but, but by the time they get to the end, it's a very clear Mm -hmm. like request, give us property among our father's brothers. Like here's the rationale, which you have given us very nicely, but this is the solution too. like, this is what we think you should do, which is a really strong Claim Not just like, hey, we've been thinking about what, you know, like,
0: yes. what are we supposed
1: to do? Yes. It is like, yes. this is the right thing to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Amy, you know, in this biblical text, it is not particularly common to encounter women who, whose names are given. Yeah. Here we have five of them all named. Yeah. Can you talk to me? I mean, I don't know what to say about that exactly, but that seems like something.
0: I mean, yeah, it's it's crazy even reading that, you know, some of those long lineages that are given, you would never even know people had daughters, <laughs> right. let alone yeah. the name of their daughters. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I have anything super smart to say about it, Bobby, but it just, it it is really striking. And I named my daughter for one of these daughters. Yeah. I named her Hogla. <laughs> no, I didn't name her Hagla. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm so curious if there are people named Hagla out there.
0: No, uh, <laughs> no, my daughter's name is Noah, and I just have to say because this drives me crazy. In my translation, it spells it N O A H here. Yes, is that how it, your Mine does too? In the CEB, okay. it is a different name. It is a totally different Hebrew name yeah. than Noah in the Ark. That is Noah.
1: Right with a. And this is
0: Noah. Yeah. Which usually, when it's written in English now, people don't put an A on it. They just spell it anyway. Yeah. That one has come to be a a common name in Israel. I don't know about these other ones. I may have heard of a Tirza, but I I digress.
1: (laughs) No, that's important. That's important.
0: What are these viable names for English speakers?
1: Yeah, I love that that's who you named your daughter after because it's such an interesting model of sort of feminine empowerment, as you were saying at the beginning. And, yeah. like, a woman who is able to stand up for herself in a patriarchal culture. I just, like, I, I've always thought that was a really lovely, lovely name.
0: Her middle name is someone who definitely was not interested in the rules.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. The combination of those two names. It's a combination. Is, is you got to
0: know when to play which card.
1: <laughs> so you were talking about the male genealogies. And, I mean, this text starts that way, right? They start with yeah. the had and then the son of Hafer, the grandson of Gilead, Machir, and all the way back to Manasseh. And so you sort of think this text is going to start, it's just going to exist in that man's world because it starts out that way. And then we get the names of these five women. It mm. sort of, I don't know, for me, it disrupted that sort of sense of, oh, here's another male lineage. It yeah. is a male lineage, but yeah. now here we get the names of these five.
0: But it does sort of set this, it reminds you, you know, like it really sort of puts you in... This is the context in which we're in. Everything is set up thinking about male lineage. Yeah. And now guess what? You have five sisters.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, this line in verse three, our father died in the desert. Mm -hmm. He wasn't part of the community who gathered against the Lord with Korah. Mm -hmm. He died for his own sin. Can you talk a little bit about the, like, they're clearly trying to, distance him from one sort of reason people have died and associate him with some other reason. Can you sort that out at all? I mean,
0: gosh, that's a good question, Bobby. So the story of Korach's rebellion is, you know, Korach and some friends and ultimately like a whole big group of people come to Moses and, and Aaron and say like, does the Lord really only speak through you? Like why do you set yourself up as, sort of holier than everyone else. Surely it's, he he sort of is suggesting this democratization of uh, holiness of, you know, ability to receive information from God of sort of leadership. It does not go well. The earth opens up and (laughs) swallows all that. chorus and all his guys. But now that you raise that you raise that question, it is interesting that they don't want these women to be associated with someone who is suggesting that this whole this whole system is corrupt and everything should be democratic. Heaven yeah. forbid, right? Like, but there's a certain radicalness about yeah. that that maybe this text is intentionally trying to distance them from.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. That story, by the way, that Amy is just talking about is in number 16, if if anybody wants to go back and take a look. But that makes a lot of sense to me, what you're saying, Amy, that the text is trying to say, look, these are not part of the rebellious faction that test Moses' leadership. They are part of the community that recognizes Moses' leadership. Mm -hmm. And within that recognition of his his leadership, they have raised this legitimate question about mm-hmm. how this law is going to work, and so this is not an act of like overturning the system. Right. It's an act of working within the system to try to deal with some ambiguities about mm-hmm. the status of women and in inheritance.
0: Yeah.
1: That seems really important.
0: Yeah.
1: I still like that. It's like it's not that like he died of natural causes. It <laughs> he <is>. died for <laughs> his own. He
0: had his own problems. Okay. He had his own problems.
1: I mean, presumably that's a reference to, he was part of that generation that was afraid to go up into the land. And so that whole generation died for their own sin.
0: I assume that's what it's referring to, but it is. that's funny. (laughs) He died just like everybody else. Yeah. He was no saint. Okay.
1: All right. So the way they frame their question is why should our father's name be taken away from his Mm. clan? So what they're asking for is land given to them, the, the daughters, the way that they frame it is in order to preserve the name of our father in his clan.
0: It just, Bobby, it just goes back to like all these stories we've been reading in the Hebrew Bible about the importance of having a descendant, like the important, like the importance for this system. This is the, the closest you get to any kind of sort of, Uh, eternal life is that it, it passes through the generations. And this is a really sort of strangely concrete, (laughs) you know, aspect of that is that, is that your land passes through the generations. And if you just, if his land is just divided up and given to other people, then, you know, it's, uh, it's as if he never existed. I mean, it's not really, but that's what they're saying. You know, that's what they're saying. We want him to have this enduring legacy. And this is part of, this should be part of that.
1: Yeah. All right. So they have made this case before Moses and the others. Is there anything else you want to say about this little section before we look at how Moses responds? No, I'm ready. All right. So picking up then in verse five, Moses brought their case before the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, "Zelophehad's daughters are right in what they are saying By all means, give them property as an inheritance among their father's brothers. Hand over their father's inheritance to them. Speak to the Israelites and say, If a man dies and doesn't have a son, you must hand his inheritance over to his daughters. If he doesn't have a daughter, you will give his inheritance to his brothers. If he doesn't have any brothers, you should give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, you should give his inheritance to his nearest relative from his clan. He will take possession of it. This will be a regulation and a case law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. It is interesting to me. I think important that Moses doesn't simply like make a determination about what's the right thing to do, given what's already been said, but he brings it to God and all of this new regulation is God's words. Can you talk a little bit about, about that?
0: I mean, it's really striking because it's not, you know, Moses has really portrayed part of that, the strain of being the leader of these people is that he has to adjudicate all these cases. And there are, yeah. you know, various situations where he's trying to set up different systems of judges to adjudicate adjudicate cases. But it does, the fact that he goes, he doesn't say anything. He right. just brings it directly to God. And that to me is a recognition that, that the women have brought a case that it, it really requires something new to happen. Like it requires yeah. some novelty within the system that they have. There's no clear way to handle this. Yes. And they brought, they brought a really, they brought a, a good and novel question. Yes. And I love that God just says very like matter of factly. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. They're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely.
0: And just like that, the whole system of inheritance is expanded and clarified. And yeah, it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, they're right. We're going to have to make the following adjustment. And even though God is God, this wouldn't have happened if the women hadn't brought the case.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. So these five daughters have, of their own initiative, changed the divine law, basically. God has yeah. added to or amended the initial giving of the Torah based on their observation. Yeah. You know, feminist scholarship has, for a long time, tried to convince the rest of the scholarly world that, that women can see things in the world, in the text, in the law that men kind of overlook, which I think is exactly, I mean, that is absolutely true. It's so interesting, like I, I sort of read this text as like a, an early version of that, which is to say mm-hmm. all these men who gave the law and the God who seems to have interest in men in this part of the text anyway, they just overlooked this whole issue. But mm-hmm. the women, because of who they are and because of their own experience and because of how they experience the male line of inheritance are able to see something that the men in the story can't see. And so what the men in the story do and what God in the story does is acknowledge the legitimacy of what they have seen mm-hmm. and then adjust accordingly. I just like, to me, this text is really beautiful in that sense, like acknowledging the women's experience and the rightness of their observation, making yeah. adjustments as, as needed.
0: And it's, it's, I don't know what I was going to say. Interesting, but that's such a boring adjective. Like, like, uh, it's, it is not lost on me that the way they make their case is that it's their father's name who will be lost. They never oh, yeah. say we deserve this land.
1: That's true, yeah. And
0: certainly it does not wind up with equality. Yeah. Like it winds up it, with like, if there are no sons, then it can go to the daughters. And if there are no daughters, it just reverts back to the totally yeah. male system.
1: Yeah, this, this little section of text, after that beautiful shining moment, of give them the land. Then it ends with this <laughs> whole long list of men who get the land if, yeah, right.
0: If there's no sons or daughters. So I mean, so yes, we. It, it really, in a lot of ways, like reminds me of how jurisprudence works, even yeah. now, or at least maybe should work, is that it's it's iterative. Like it's it's small steps, and they yeah. they bring forward that something needs to be adjusted, and it is, but it doesn't, you know, break open the. The doors yeah. of equality. It just it 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 moves the. What do people say? Moves the dial. What do people
1: it moves mo- the dial? Moves expands the, shifts the Overton window.
0: Oh, I don't know that one. Whatever it <laughs> <laughs> it takes us forward just a little bit, and that's really good and important. And, and maybe realistic. But, yeah, it's not like some kind of big sweeping thing. It's not like what Korach was suggesting when he was like, overturn the system. Let's have democratic access to revelation. And that's not, that was not God's plan at that time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, Amy, you're coming really close to ruining this story for me.
0: Sorry. Right. Okay. <laughs> this story is great.
1: Um, and so I've just but I but it's worth talking about. like you're exactly right. This is an incremental move. It still basically preserves the male lineage. It makes an exception based on case law or at least a case that comes out of concern for a male's legacy. And so this is a feminist moment in the text, and it is also a feminist moment in the text that ultimately, is preserving with a minor modification, what is a patriarchal system. And so I think it's like, it's just, I mean, I don't know quite what to, what to do with that. Like, I, I don't want it to diminish this contribution that they, that they have made, because it's an important contribution, but, but maybe this text is so approving of them because they didn't actually challenge the system.
0: Well, they didn't, you're right. They didn't challenge the whole system but that, you know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. They were able to actually move the needle. That's what you move. You move oh, yeah. the needle. You can they move were a able dial, able to move too. the needle. Huh? You can move a dial, I guess.
1: <laughs> but Korach
0: needle. did not move yeah. anything.
1: That's true. He got swallowed by the earth.
0: He got swallowed by the earth.
1: Oh, I mean, so in that sense, he moved, like, a lot of things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole plates of, of the planetary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did.
1: <laughs> so, so Dr. Google tells me that the Overton window is an approach to identifying the ideas that define the spectrum of acceptability of governmental policies, and so you can shift the Overton window oh. by saying something really like that's a much
0: more like specifically relevant phrase.
1: I was trying to decide if it was. I guess it is that's governmental good. policy. Yeah. It anyway, is
0: governmental policy. It for sure is. But I mean, I think that the other, Bobby. Tell me if you can think of other situations before this, where this has happened. But I think the other thing it does is like, in addition to this particular case and the role of, of, of women, it's just the idea that like, you can bring a question to Moses about the legal system that Moses doesn't know and brings it to God and God will say like, Oh yeah, you're right. I didn't think, I didn't know. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So here let's fix that little thing. Yeah. That's radical.
1: Yeah, the commentary that I was reading by Thomas Dozeman, prepping for today, he says that there are four cases in which Moses has to go and ask God mm-hmm. for a new ruling. Mm-hmm. One is what to do with somebody who blasphemes the name of the Lord in Leviticus mm-hmm. 24. One is what to do with somebody who's traveling and can't celebrate Passover on the proper day in Numbers mm-hmm. 19. And then one is a question about what happens to someone who breaks Sabbath law in number fi- Numbers 15. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of four cases in the biblical text. So, I mean, like that is significant that this story and these five women have raised an issue that rises to that level. That's important.
0: Yeah.
1: I think it's also important that the answer here is not just give these five women the land of their father. It is now it becomes the new law of the way things are to be done in the community of God which is yes. if any man dies and doesn't have a son, you must. And then it, so this question that they have raised ripples on beyond themselves to, to other, other and future women as well. Yes.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Amy. So that is the section, the initial story of the daughters of Salafahad. Is there anything else you want to say about this part in numbers 27?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I say this every single time, I think. I wish I could know the women better. Yeah. Like I I can try to imagine that the way that they were raised or the way that they stuck together or the way that, you know, but something in the world or something deep in themselves gave them the idea that they could do this.
1: Yeah.
0: And there is no real, there's, there's not much in the world that would have given them that idea. Because as yeah. you're saying, it was very rare that this happened really at all. Yeah. But this was a really courageous and really, I don't even know the word for it. Like, I mean, chutzpah dick? I don't know. But just, like, something had to give them the idea that this yeah. was even a possibility. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. Whatever else was going on in the world at that time, these five women said this, this is what should happen. It should be an option for us to inherit this property. Yeah. And, and we're gonna fight for that.
1: I really love that. Yeah, I, I wonder if the, like the, there's five of them together, which gives yeah. one another courage maybe.
0: I would imagine so. I would imagine so.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on women of the Hebrew Bible. Amy and I are grateful to you for being part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bibleworm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreoncom Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, so when we talked about this with the Bibleworm collaborative, one of the questions that came up was but then so what happens in the next generation, isn't the land just going to get incorporated into some other male's line, which is.
0: Oh, wow. They anticipated the question.
1: They, they did, which is a question that does not seem to be anticipated right here. But it yeah. does come up later in Numbers 36. Yeah. So I'll pick up there in one. The leaders of the households of the clan of Gilead, Machir's son and Manasseh's grandson of Joseph's clan, approached and spoke before Moses and the chiefs, who were the leaders of the Israelite households. They said, The Lord commanded my master to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the Israelites, but my master was also commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. If they are married to someone from another Israelite tribe— their inheritance will be taken away from our household and given to another tribe into which they marry. Then it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance at the Israelite Jubilee. Their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they were married. Then their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our ancestral tribe. Okay. Can you just help us understand what the issue that is being raised here is?
0: So, when the ancestral land is allocated, it's not allocated, it, it, it's allocated by tribe. And so like the tribe of Manasseh has this much land and the tribe of Judah has this land and, you know, whatever. And then it's sort of subdivided within that right. into, you know, clans and then individual families. That's one piece of background. Another piece of unfortunate background is that the existing system in Israel especially once a woman gets married it it really doesn't recognize that woman as a person who can like own her own things and sort of function in the world without the you know express blessing and permission of her husband she's kind mm. of seen as as property of her husband yeah There are laws that require like care for your wife, but there is no sense of no sense at all of equality or autonomy of the woman really. And so if the woman has this land, once she marries anything that was hers, now she is sort of under the, under the heading of her husband. And so now all this stuff belongs to her husband. And if her husband is not in the same tribe, then it's the same issue that we sort of started with, <laughs> right. which is that we, at the, at the end of the day, the land inheritance needs to stay within the tribe to which it was originally allocated. Yes. And this would mess that
1: up. I like the way you said that there at the end, that this, the solution in Numbers 27 sort of defers the underlying problem yeah. one generation into the future. Yeah. which is good. But now we've got the same problem, which is now what's going to happen with the children of these daughters and what what tribe they belong to. That was really helpful. What I'm really interested in in this text is the solution, which is, comes in the next section. Is there anything we should say about the problem that has been raised? Like it's a legitimate problem that's being raised by these by these tribal leaders.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is it is definitely a legitimate problem. And you were just saying earlier that I was kind of ruining this story for you. <laughs> it's like, it is a reminder to me that although this overall is a good ruling for women, I think in, in this telling, it sort of raises up. But at the end of the day, what's important is the land. Yes. And the land inheritance. Yes. It's not, we're not doing this because it's fair to the women. Yes.
1: <laughs> like that,
0: <laughs> right. you know like it's still working within the system that is ultimately patriarchal and ultimately focused on on you know the importance of this land inheritance so yeah you know it, it if you are super excited about the last chapter then this chapter is sort of like okay <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> yeah okay. all of this is within I a larger see what's really important yes it's
0: all within yeah. a larger system that is still that
1: is problematic It's problematic. And also there's a really lovely idea that I think Leviticus 25, the Jubilee text, gives us that the land belongs to God. It is not yours. You do not have control over it. It is God's. And that people living on the land are sort of like tenants. Like you, you get to have the land and work the land and raise your family on the land, but you do not own the land and that God has in mind sort of a distribution among the people. Like all of those to me are really lovely principles. Yes. It runs into this other issue then about like, but what does that mean in this particular circumstance? Yeah. But it's, it's showing us that there's two commitments I think that are, that run sort of headlong into each other. And so you've got competing values that have to be adjudicated in some way or another.
0: Bobby, that's so I'm so glad you brought that up because it's really, I really had slipped into like we're talking about inheritance. That sure sounds like ownership. Yeah. You know, and and in some ways we're we're talking about the messy intersection of this divinely ordained system and humans and human mortality and human systems of organizing ourselves and human, you know laws and inherit, you know, we're we're trying to figure out how to make this idea work within a human system and it's complicated.
1: Yeah. Amy, this reference to the Jubilee in verse four is kind of confusing. Like it doesn't actually seem quite to square up, at least in my mind with the Jubilee law in Leviticus 25. Mm. I don't know that it's really worth, like this is something that I think puzzles scholars as well. And so I don't know that it's really worth unpacking too far, but that reference to jubilee is, I think, important. I just don't quite know what to do with it. Do you, do you have any help there?
0: I mean, I can tell you the sort of simple-minded way that I understand it, but I'm sure it is much more complicated than that. What the, what I know of what the biblical text says is that if you sell your land right. in the jubilee year, it goes back to that ancestral you know, tribal holdings. Right. I don't think that it says anything about what would happen in this situation. I think that's right. Where it has, because it's not envisioning this situation. So it's sort of like the daughters of Zalofahad have brought up this case where it's like, you didn't think about this when you put together the law and God says, oh yeah, you're right. We should do what they're saying. And then this is a, And then there's like yet another. Yeah. Part of that, like, but wait, if we do that, then what about this other principle right. that we're in conflict with? Um, so it's just this constant sort of iterating, negotiating between all, you know, these original principles that have been set forth.
1: I like that because then what you're sort of saying is they're just saying that this doesn't quite square with Jubilee law. And you haven't so you haven't thought all the way through because Jubilee says the land in the 50th year, reverts back to the original tribe. Yeah. And so the Jubilee, on on the face of it, seems in this case that it would be when the 50th year comes, it would go back to the tribe of Zelophehad. And so no problem. But what they're saying is at the Jubilee, it's going to go to the tribe of the husbands. So I think there's a question here about how does one apply Jubilee law?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. How does one apply Jubilee law in this case, if that... If Jubilee seemed to be envisioning a situation where you've sold your land, yeah, and this is not a situation of selling your land, but it is a situation of the land transferring from one tribe to another. Yes, it hasn't it hasn't yeah. been addressed.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. I appreciate it. All right. So the solution that is offered picks up then in verse five. Then Moses commanded the Israelites according to the Lord's word. The tribe of Joseph's descendants are correct in what they are saying. This is the word that the Lord commands to Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry whomever seems best to them, but they may only marry into one of the clans of their ancestral tribe, so that the inheritance of the Israelites doesn't transfer from one tribe to another. The Israelites will each retain the tribal inheritance of his ancestral tribe. Every daughter who inherits land from an Israelite tribe must marry into one of the clans of her father's tribe, in this way, each Israelite will own the land of his ancestors. An inheritance of land may not be transferred from one tribe to another, for the Israelite tribes will each retain its own inheritance. Zelophehad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Mala, Tirzah, Haglah, Milcha, and Noah, Zelophehad's daughters, married their cousins. They married into the clan of Manasseh, Joseph's son. Their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. Okay. So I was got a little confused at the beginning about who is actually responding, but this is again, Mm -hmm. the Lord making this declaration through Moses. Is is that how you read that? It
0: is. Although for, for whatever reason, maybe I'm grasping at straws. It's, I feel some difference with the last one. Moses brought the case to the Lord and this is what the Lord said. And then it's like a quote from the Lord. (laughs) And here it's like, yeah, Moses totally checked in with God in this book. God, you know, like,
1: You're right. <laughs> and then <he laughs> yeah. said
0: this, and I'm like, "Did God really say that?" I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes Moses, I don't know. I, I, this is so heretical, but sometimes I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure if Moses is. I'm thinking about the the case with that, like right before that, I think ten commandment, ten commandments. I think where um, Moses. God gives Moses this sort of general command to like, that the men should purify themselves and await this revelation. And Moses specifically tells them the men should stay away from women. Yeah. Um, which many interpreters have pointed out like this. That's an interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> that's not exactly yeah. what God said. So yeah, I don't know how that would apply here. I But I wonder if there's any wiggle room. In any case, it says, all all the text tells us is that Moses said this at the Lord's bidding. So I guess it's we should just That's interesting because
1: that's exactly the same question that I was sort of raising in my own mind was is is this Moses's kind of best interpretation of what God is commanding in this situation or is this thus saith the Lord? Yeah, right. Right. And I also want to read it as Moses's interpretation, which is just interesting yeah. to me to observe that you and I both kinda wanna
0: want to go that way. Question that a little bit.
1: Can you say a little bit about what, I mean, because that's sort of where you land, it seems like there's something troubling about this conclusion or the solution. Can you talk a little bit about the way that seems troubling?
0: I mean, I think it's just, you know, as what's what's troubling to me, almost more than like, okay, now there's a smaller pool of people that they can marry is just this sort of explicit raising up or recognition that maybe would have been obvious to an ancient person. And it's not, would not have been obvious to me that in the next generation, not even the next generation, as soon as you get married, that land belongs to your husband, right? You know, and so your, your status as an independent, autonomous person who can have property goes away, right? That's really what bothers me. I mean, that they have a limited pool of people to marry. I mean, I don't know.
1: I mean, how many? You just need one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know. I'm like, what if they don't get married at all, Moses? You put that option in there? No, that was not not a common option in the
1: ancient world. No, I, I mean, first of all, it's probably worth saying in this context that marrying your cousin was actually the ideal marriage
0: yeah, mm-hmm.
1: in, in ancient Israel, at least for part of the history. And so you think of stories about, you know, Abraham going back to or sending his servant back to his ancestral land or Jacob going back to his ancestral land to find a cousin to marry. And so th- it sounds weird to us to say they married their cousins.
0: Right, right, right.
1: But it was not at all weird. In this the wasn't weird. Ancient world. This was sort of standard practice, even ideal practice.
0: It, I mean, I feel like in our time, it would be like you married someone from your hometown.
1: Right. Exactly. So now you're
0: not going to argue about where you spend Thanksgiving because right. you're going to be in your hometown. Yeah. You just so, go to
1: one place for lunch and one place for supper. Yeah. Right. You can do everything yeah. all the time. Yeah. They <laughs> married somebody from their hometown. Somebody they went to high school with. I, I, right. I, I, I like that. I think that's a good interpretation. I do appreciate what you're raising, which is there. You One could imagine other solutions to this problem, right? So we just had a text in the Tamar story, which was raising this issue about like, Mm. you know, leverant marriage and the husband, the father of the child does not necessarily have to be the sort of legal father of the child. And so you can attribute a child to a different father. Like there are ways that one could imagine working out that sort of law so that the daughters of Zalafahad's children still belong to their clan of their yeah. grandfather, to Zalafahat's tribe, rather than, Like there are other solutions one could work out, as you were saying, but this is the one. I mean, those get really complicated.
0: They get really and complicated. The, no, you're right. I feel like this is sort of a, this is a way of like containing yeah. pretty tightly what yeah. has actually been changed in the yeah. system. They're not suddenly saying like, well, maybe once you have property, you don't actually need to marry, cause you can grow your own darn food and you could, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, yeah. we're not going there.
1: Right. We're yeah. not going there. I think that's right. And I mean, to me, that goes back to the, the, the moving of the needle that you were talking about earlier, that this is like, we've made an increment, we've made incremental progress within an overarching patriarchal system. These particular women have, I think, really done something important and standing up for the, their rights and the rights of their father. And and they didn't and they've made a change. They've made a difference. And also it's a difference of limited
0: so. Right. It 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 it's a good reminder that it takes a lot. It takes a, a lot of groups of sisters or whoever who are gonna bring up every time the system is is not working yeah. in order to get enough incremental change, you know, that that you can start pulling down some of these bigger things. Yeah. It takes a lot.
1: For whatever reason, what you just said reminded me of a story from my old seminary, Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, that when women first started being ordained in the Presbyterian Church that that seminary belongs to, the women students would bring cowbells to the theology class. Mm -hmm. And every time the theology professor, I I think was Shirley Guthrie at the time, uh, his name is Shirley, he's a man. Uh, would say something sort of patriarchal they would ring their cowbells and so it was like this women's solidarity of like every single time something happens we're gonna like make a statement about it wow until the until things change that's that a little just bit got,
0: that just got really real for me bobby that kind of gave yeah. me like you know goosebumps
1: yeah. because
0: that is a you know we hear all the time rightfully so from people of all kinds of different minority groups that they don't want to have to be the police all the time. Like they, they need, we, that's a really big burden to ask someone to carry. And so, you know, that's on us as allies and the different ways we can be allies in the world, not to just, (laughs) just make, you know, the group that is being harmed, be the ones to speak out. And also sometimes we don't see it until someone shows us, you know, and so that's exactly right. Wow. Cowbells. That's amazing.
1: I'm glad my students don't do that to me. <laughs> I try very hard, but I, you know, me being who I am, there are some limitations to my perspective about things. And so I would probably get cowbelled at that least
0: really tough.
1: once a day. I mean, yeah. I
0: would get cowbelled. Yeah, like yeah. that's, yeah.
1: So what this text has managed to do is allowed the daughters of Zalafahad to carry on their father's legacy. And then it has also allowed the land to stay within the tribe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's these sort of two values that have been uh, linked together in, in this way. And it has resulted in the limitations of the right of the women to sort of marry who they want. So that mm-hmm. that's kind of the trade-off here as mm-hmm. I see it. Does that sound right?
0: Yes, that sounds right. And at least before they marry, it recognizes women as a viable landowner. Yeah. Which I don't know that that was the case before this.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And also that women's voices here are being heard by not yes. only the men in the story, but also by God and, and valued. Yes. That's important Yes,
0: too. yes. Yes, there was no response from Moses or God or the chieftains or the elders or anyone that said, you don't have standing. Right. The women had standing.
1: You are right. Yep. So the, the daughters get named again here. I, I, mean, yeah. I don't know. Like, just the, the, the repetition of their names just seems so important to me, as we were saying, given the lack of women's names in the biblical text as a whole. You could have just called them Zalafahad's daughters, but we actually yeah. name them again. I don't know what to say about that other than that, but is there anything you want to say about that?
0: Yeah, I don't, I mean, okay, um, this is probably a weird detail, but I'm looking to see if the order, the order
1: is different. Oh, interesting.
0: I almost like it more that the order is different because it's not just they were known oh, as yeah. a unit And this is the unit and they always go in this order. But like the names of these women are known. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what to make of it other than it is important. These were specific people who did this specific thing. Yeah. Until we get to remember them.
1: Yeah. I love that Amy. And if it were just like they were listed from oldest to youngest or whatever, then you would have another hierarchy
0: that's how I had assumed. Honestly, I hadn't noticed before that it's in a different order. I had assumed the first time that they were listed oldest to youngest.
1: Yeah, but Noah no, is listed no last real year. Reason. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. And then, so you know, like here we have the sort of names of women are being given in a non-hierarchical fashion. Like, there's something mm-hmm. really beautiful and, and feminist about that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that.
1: We get one more reference to the daughters of Zelophehad, which is not in our official reading for today, but it's over in Joshua 17, verses 3 and 4. The Numbers text is set while the Israelites are still in the wilderness before they enter the land. So here's what's going to happen when you get to the land. The Joshua text is written from now we're in the land.
0: Hmm.
1: And so 17, 3 and 4 in the book of Joshua just says, so was Hafer's son, Gilead's grandson, Machir's great-grandson, and Manasseh's great-great-grandson. So had no sons, only daughters, who were named Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcha, and Tirzah. The daughters approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua, Nun's son, and the leaders. They said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us a legacy along with our male relatives. So in agreement with the Lord's command, they were given a legacy along with their uncles. Yeah. So I was just reading that as like, and so it happened. They actually yeah. did what they said they, they were going to do. They actually
0: did what they were going to say.
1: Which is important.
0: Yep. The women followed up and the leader said, yep.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm curious what, when they say in the CEB, the Lord commanded Moses to give us a legacy. What does the JPS have there?
0: The JPS has the Lord commanded Moses to grant us a portion among our male kinsmen.
1: The reason that I was bringing that up is because here it actually sounds like they receive something that is theirs. Which was a little more muted in the earlier text.
0: Yeah. But maybe it just
1: ends up being theirs for a moment and then going on to someone, someone else. I don't know if that makes any difference or not, but it stood, it did stand out to me just there.
0: Uh, Yes. it, It stands out to me too. And maybe part of it is just that like, I, I recognized at the time that they were making their case that it was, they really couched the whole thing in terms of the legacy of their father. Like, this is Correct. how you honor our father. And, I, and that probably was important at that time. And, and now we see in the next generation, you can drop that part of the language, yeah. you know, and just get to, we're supposed to have a portion alongside our male kinsmen. Yeah. And then hopefully, hopefully, you know, in generations to come, can go a little farther.
1: I really love that. That's actually the shifting of the Overton window, right? You like take something that seems radical and you make it seem not radical. And then you can, now you can push a little further and a little further. So I really like that, that by the end of this story, we get to a normalization of what had to be very carefully couched in the original telling. Yeah. I like that.
0: That's pretty wild, Bobby, that this, this incident is mentioned three times
1: Three times. In the biblical text. And yes. all
0: five women are named three times. Every time, yeah. And every time it is, you know, affirmed, the general ruling is affirmed, and, you know, the middle yes. time it's sort of couched and some other stuff. But that's that's pretty that's pretty big.
1: That is really big. And it also, the way this story ends is, it sort of leaves, leaves behind that issue of who do they marry, and it just mm. ends with them having... An inheritance among their yes. uncles, yes. Which presumably, maybe they did marry and whatever. But the story is right. not bringing us back to that; it's bringing us right. back to they inherited along with the rest of their family. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, that is the threefold story of the daughters of Zelophehad, as told in Numbers and Joshua. Mm. There's a whole lot I think that you could bring to connect to today. I'm just curious where your head is as we end this conversation?
0: Bobby, reading this story reminded me of this poster that I had in my office for many years when I worked at a synagogue that was founded by the gay and lesbian community that listed that the year in which various rights, all related to, to women's sort of autonomy came into being. And so it had, you know, when women could vote, but it also had like, when was birth control legal? And when could women get their own credit that wasn't in the name of their husband? Mm. Or when was sort of rape recognized as a thing that could happen within the context of marriage? And it had the years for all of these. And then at the bottom, it had same-sex marriage with a question mark. Like, when is this, when are we going to get there? And it was shocking to me all the time. That's why I hung this in my office. How recent some of these things were. Like <laughs> I mean, I remember yeah. looking at it and thinking like when my parents got married, my mom could not have credit that wasn't oh, attached amazing. to my father. And that is insane to me. Yeah. And it it was both really sobering and also really encouraging to me at like the hardest moments of that fight for marriage equality, that like things do change. Even if like this very tiny window within which I've been alive, it seemed like we already were at the peak of this, you know, equality mountain or whatever it was. I thought we were at at this point. Now we're, now we're taking things back off the list. So that's a whole, you know, we'll make a different poster for that. But I think I thought of that poster because it, this is not a perfect story. Like it doesn't go all the way where I want it to. And then that, that second section in chapter 36 kind of like dulls some of the six, you know, what I thought was the success of 27. And so part of, part of me wants to say, wants to be really upset about that. And, yeah. and of course, like that, that sense of injustice is exactly the agitation that we need to continue bringing the cases forward that's real and important but it, all, it it keeps it i guess hopeful for me that context that change does happen it is horrifying that some of these issues have not been worked out yet weren't worked out at that time and are still not worked out but it is worth it is worth continuing to fight like the fight is not over yeah. The vice not over. And so we have things to do. And so we cannot give up both of those. And that's what these, the daughters of Salofahad remind me.
1: Yeah, I really love that, Amy. I would echo all of that, although I would not have said it so well. And I think to me, there's also just a theological observation to make here that, I mean, it's true in both of our communities and various places that the status of women in the religious community is understood in various ways across the diversity of both Judaism and Mm -hmm. Christianity. And here, one of the things I really love about this text is that these five women come forward and make their statement, not asking the question, they make a claim about the way things should be. And that one line where, you know, God's sort of first line in the text, which is, Salafahad's daughters are right in what they are saying. And, you know, in a community that sometimes argues for reasons that are unclear to me about the legitimacy of women's voices, the legitimacy of women's leadership, the legitimacy of women's claims in the religious and in the civil context, here's just God saying, yep, I overlooked that. You are exactly right. The solution you offered is the right solution. So Mm -hmm. let's do that. Mm -hmm. That affirmation to me just seems really important, kind of it's of its own accord and that this text, which is patriarchal in many ways, Mm -hmm. is able to recognize that legitimacy even even here.
0: Yes. With no sense of like being threatened or no sense of whether they have standing to speak or no sense of whatever, just to like, let's just hear them out. And then then God says, yeah,
1: you're right. And then it gets reaffirmed in 36 and then it gets reaffirmed in Joshua 17. Like there's never any question about whether that original claim that they made was a, was a legitimate claim to make.
0: I like it, Bobby.
1: Me too. I love, I love this text. I've never, I don't think I've ever actually interpreted this text in any kind of way. So I, I've enjoyed talking about it with you. Yeah,
0: me too.
1: So next week the series will continue on with a look at Rahab in Joshua two and a little bit of Joshua six. Mm-hmm. That one's a pre-recorded episode that we did back in the fall sometime.
0: I love, I love Rahab. She's I know you say Rahab and I say Rahav. I love her.
1: Rahab is so much more beautiful than Rahab, but I just can't retrain you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can't undo your training. I got gotcha. you.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, Amy, thanks for this conversation. Have a great week.
0: You too. You too. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bibleworm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible podcast for details.
0: Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Hobbs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast
1: possible. Join us next time when we'll continue our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with the story of Rahab, as told in Joshua 2, 1-24, and 6, to 24 Until then, keep on digging.